will take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. As we began a new journey this morning that uh, I mentioned last week after finishing the Sermon on the Mount and series during Advent and then just sort of a topical sermon for the new year last week we come to this book of Hebrews that I want us to spend some time delving into spend some time thinking about the the meat of this book because it is a very it's a very difficult book in many ways to uh, to read and to understand it's unlike any other New Testament book uh, has some similarities maybe to first John but but for the most part, it is a unique piece of New Testament literature. We know very little about it. We know very little about who the Hebrews are. In, in the earliest manuscript, there is the inscription above the, uh, the book that says, To the Hebrews. Uh, but it doesn't tell where they are. We know they're Jewish believers who have trusted Christ and who really are in, in danger of giving up. They are at a point in their life where they have been persecuted, they have been challenged. They've undergone, in many cases, horrendous persecution. And they're at the point of just saying, is it worth it? Was it not easier just to be involved in the Jewish sacrificial system? Was it not easier just to go along with the gang, go along with the crowd? Was it not easier just to follow the old traditions than rather than to follow Christ? So they're in danger of, of giving up, in danger of returning to the sacrificial system that has been fulfilled in Christ, that is now finished and no longer valid, and yet they are tempted to go back to that. So the writer gives them several urges through this book. He urges them to do things like hold fast, strive to enter, go on to maturity, and seize the hope that is set before them. I mean, this is a book of great encouragement. It's a book of great uh, uh, passion, if you will, calling these people to be obedient to Christ and trust Christ and hang on in the Christian life. It's an interesting thing the way he begins this book because while he is the, the writer in the New Testament, the book gives more Old Testament references uh, percentage-wise than any other book. He goes to the Old Testament time and time and time again. And in the matter of doing that, the one thing he does, though, is he never says, listen, I know you're hurting, I know you're in pain, just draw strength from within, look, look within yourself, and you'll be able to press on, and you'll be able to continue. But rather, he encouraged them to look to Christ. Throughout this whole book, you're going to find him pointing them time and time again to Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. And he's going to say to them over and over that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of losing everything that is material and everything that's earthly, system has to offer your hope is not in this earthly system your hope is not in freedom from persecution but your hope is in Jesus Christ so he doesn't say just suck it up he doesn't say pull up your bootstraps and move forward he didn't say try harder on your own but he always points them to Jesus Christ as he does in these first verses that we're going to look at in just a few moments secondly although there's, he's deeply aware of the problems these believers are facing, it's interesting that he does not give them immediate pastoral exhortation. Now, he will give them pastoral exhortation, which they desperately need to hear. Press on, strive forward, keep the faith, and all that sort of thing. But he doesn't do that until he's reminded them several times of the uniqueness and the preciousness of Jesus Christ. 
He wants them to see where their hope lies. He wants them to understand where their strength comes from. And so while he will give them pastoral exhortation, indeed, he even calls this his exhortation, he will not do that until he's reminded them of the uniqueness and the power of Christ. Some have questioned whether this is a letter, it's called a letter, it's called an epistle, or whether it's really maybe a sermon that was preached to this group of Hebrews and they they heard it and they digested it and they copied it and they wrote it down and, and it really is because it does have more of a sermonic tone to it than it does a letter tone. It's not like any of the other letters in the New Testament. A typical way of writing a letter in that day, they had a typical way like we do today. Today if we write a letter, we usually start it different from what they did. We start, Dear Whoever, Dear Bill. And, and we address the person we're writing to, then we say what we want to say, and then at the end we say, sincerely or love or whatever, and we sign our name. So we start out with who it's addressed to, and then we uh, close with who it's from. In, in the New Testament times, the way of writing letters was sort of reversed from that. They would start out by saying, this is from the Apostle Paul. And Paul in his letters always started out by saying, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints who are at Philippi. So in the very first part of a letter in that day, you understood who it was from and who it was to. And they stressed that. They understood that. And then they knew. But here there is no uh, from and no to in the first part of this book. There's just a different approach. So it's led many to believe that this probably is a sermon rather than a typical letter. There's been struggles throughout the, the centuries as to who wrote this book. Now, if you're holding a King James Version of the Bible, an authorized version of the Bible in your hand, it will say at the top of your epistle, uh, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, or from Paul to the Hebrews. And that's in all of the King James Versions of the Bible. That's the only place you'll find that. It's not in any of the original uh, manuscripts, or any of the early manuscripts that we have. We don't have originals, but any of the early manuscripts we have. It's not, Paul's name is never attached to any of those early on. And so that's left a lot of speculation. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, believed it was Barnabas who wrote it, the, the son of encouragement. That he wrote this because he was such an encourager and he saw these people suffering and he wanted them to remember where their hope was and so he encouraged them to look to Christ and trust Christ and Tertullian was convinced it was Barnabas. In the third century, several scholars suggested that Luke may be the author. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts and Luke was a very meticulous historian and Luke would lay out the details and he was a student of, of stuff and so he was obviously a student of, uh, of Judaism and a student of Christianity and so in third century many people thought Luke might have been the author of it and, and very well he could have been for all we know some believed it was Clement of Rome and, and they took that to be the case because it does have some similarity to first John and Clement was a disciple of John he was a, a student of the Apostle John and so they felt like well he brought over some of John's ways of thinking and ways of writing from that epistle of first John and they thought it was Clement Silvanius has been a candidate and Martin Luther the great uh, reformer was reasonably sure and that's in quotation marks he was reasonably sure that Apollos may have written it uh, so I'm not reasonably sure and may have written it I don't know how that fits exactly but Apollos certainly has been uh, a candidate Priscilla and Aquila have been candidates I mean all, the whole gamut of people in the New Testament have been, have been pursued and, and thought about as maybe being the author of this letter. 
as far as the date goes, any of those could have fit into that, perhaps. Uh, the date of writing is not specified in the book anywhere. There's not a lot of uh, markers as to what the date is, but there, there may be two that give us a little bit of a clue when the book was written. One of the things that the author certainly talks about, I believe in 1032, uh, chapter 10, verse 32 and 34, there seems to be a reference there to the persecution of Nero of Christians. He talks about them having their land seized, their property seized, and, and how they, uh, uh, they were persecuted because of their faith. Nero had his persecution begin somewhere around the year A.D. 64. There's also no reference in here, although there's a great emphasis on temple worship and understanding what the temple is all about and the sacrifices, there's no, wor no mention of the temple having been destroyed. And as a matter of fact, the writer seems to indicate that the temptation... And the struggle was that these early Christians were going back to the, to the uh, sacrificial system. So the temple was probably still in existence when he wrote this letter. And the temple was destroyed by the Roman soldiers and the Roman besiegers in A.D. 70. So probably from inference, if not from an emphatic way, we can infer that this letter was probably written somewhere between 64 and 70 A.D. A, a short window there. To understand it, but definitely in the early church, early early first or mid first century, and and definitely by someone who had seen this persecution firsthand, and who also had seen the apostles firsthand, and had heard them and been taught by them. There, as I mentioned earlier, there's an amazing use of the Old Testament in this book. There's an amazing use of it that he he makes extensive use of it in making his point, and that should not be surprising to us because the Old Testament was for this writer as it was for the early church, the sacred scriptures. When you hear Paul talk about, and the scriptures say, he's not talking about one of his writings or one of the gospels or, or the book of Acts. He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law and books, were those things that were considered by the early church as their Bible, their sacred scripture. And so they always looked to the Old Testament. So he builds his case in that way. That's one of the reasons why you need to have a grasp of the Old Testament in our day if you're ever sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. You need to be able to do what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and that is showing how the Old Testament is very relevant to everything that the New Testament has to say. Uh, this writer concentrates basically on, on two sections, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and the Psalms. As a matter of fact, 23 of his 29 quotations are from those two sections because he's showing that from early on, and then from the wisdom literature, that all of this was pointing to Christ. He sees the whole of the, New, of the Old Testament as pointing toward Christ. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we have a true understanding of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Christ is the central figure of this entire book. Christ is the central figure of all of history. And this writer wants to make that very clear. And so he goes back to the Old Testament. And he says, this is what those writers were saying. They were looking forward to Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If while we're going through this book, if you decide to take as a little side exercise as we come week by week to various uh, Old Testament scriptures, you say, well, you know, I'm going to go back and read that in the Old Testament. You're probably going to go back on at least five or six of them. You're going to read it, and you're going to say, what does that have to do with anything? Because the writer chooses some, some passages that are somewhat obscure and he makes application to them that sometime is not quite as clear to you and me in their context in the Old Testament as they might be. 
So what do you do when you come to those? I, I've, uh, I was listening to D.A. Carson talk uh, several months ago on the whole concept of the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And he was talking about some of these passages in Hebrews. And he said, you know what you do there? Is you realize this is the inspired text of, 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 of God's word. God inspired it. God wrote it. And we may not understand why it relates, but he does. And so we look at it as being what God has said. As a matter of fact, it's interesting as the writer of Hebrews quotes these Old Testament texts. He doesn't say David said or Moses said. But in almost every sense, he will say either, and God said, or the Holy Spirit said. You can look over there in, in verse 7 of chapter 3, and there is a, an example of it. It says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. The writer to Hebrews believes that this is divine inspired text. He believes this is what God has said. Now, he wrote it through Moses. He wrote it through David. He wrote it through other prophets and, and leaders in the Old Testament. There were human instruments, but in the final analysis, the one thing the writer of Hebrews believes and understands and wants you and I to see and wants those early Christians who were suffering to see is this book is a word from God. It is the word from God. And everything in it relates to what we have to deal with on a daily basis with our pains, with our suffering, with our persecutions, with our hurting. And so we have to see that the, the writer sees God speaking clearly in the Old and the New Testament as we have the New Testament now. The message is really quite simple. There are 13 chapters, and we will look at all of them, but there are really just two messages in this book. They deal with revelation and redemption. The writer wants us to understand that revelation is what God has said to us. And that's why he will say over and over and over, and the Holy Spirit says, or and Jesus said, or as Christ said, or as God said. He wants us to understand what God has said to us because when we listen to the communication of Almighty God, we realize that's important. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to be left out. And so over and over he will say, this is what God has said. This is the revelation of Almighty God. And then he'll talk about redemption. Redemption is beyond what God has said into what God has done for us. So this book is, a, is 13 chapters broken down by the interpreters and the translators. 13 chapters of simply talking about what God has said to us and what God has done for us. And that's what we need to be looking for at every turn. That's what we need to be looking for each week as we come together and we hear this word expounded and dealt with. What has God said and what has God done? But as I said, it's been a troubled letter. Some people didn't even want it in the canon. Some people thought that it, like the book of James, Martin Luther thought that about both of them for a while, that neither of those books ought to be in the final canon and the final New Testament. They were too difficult. They were, they were too different from the normal writings. And, and they, this was an anonymous book. There was absolutely no authority or no authorship claimed. And anonymous books just didn't make it into the canon. But they saw something in this that they felt needed to be there. And they saw enough apostolic influence that they chose to put it in the canon. But many were troubled by it. You know, my love for Charles Spurgeon, a young Charles Spurgeon, he related this in his autobiography. In his younger days, he made this statement about Hebrews. He said, I have a very lively, or rather 
deadly recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews, which made a deep impression on my mind of the most undesirable kind. I wished frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored a poor Gentile lad. I mean, this book is written to Jewish Christians. And, and sometimes we who are not Jewish and don't have the, the, the benefit of that background of the temple worship and the sacrificial system, sometimes we look at it and we say, is this really relevant? Is this not antiquated? Is this not just studying history the way it used to be? And, and that's what Spurgeon was saying early on. I'm glad to say that later in his life he took a different view of the book of Hebrews. But early on he said, this Gentile lad is struggling with this because I just don't relate to it. But if we're diligent, and if we're careful in our understanding of this text, as I hope we will be in the weeks to come, we will see that there is so much to be said and so much to be learned from this great book. So he starts out in verse 1, chapter 1, with the most phenomenal description of who Jesus is that you'll find anywhere in all of sacred scripture. All that was just introduction. Now we get to the text. Uh, I want to read the first four verses and then probably only deal with the first three today and we'll come back to four because it relates to the things that follow. But I want to get the full thought in here of what the writer is saying. It's a tremendous statement on the glory of Christ. It is something that you ought to memorize if you haven't memorized it. Because these are verses that are, are relevant to everything we believe and everything we are in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, we'll talk about angels next week. We'll get into a little bit of a discussion of angels because we live in a day which angels are really not very well understood. Their ministry or their nature or their character. And I get worried sometimes when I go in bookstores, quote, Christian bookstores, and I see more angels than I do books about the glory of God or the person of Jesus Christ. There are angels everywhere. And it's almost like there's an angel worship going on in our world, even among Christians today. And not to mention touched by an angel and medium and all these other things that kind of relate to other otherworldly experiences that are apart from Jesus Christ. Paul, said, uh, and the, Paul, I'll say that several times, by the way, but the writer here says that God had spoke long ago in the past, in the Old Testament he's talking about, to the fathers, in the prophets, and in many different ways. He used visions, he used dreams, he, he used uh, Christophanies, where, where there would be an appearance of, of the angel of the Lord, where it was really believed it was the, an appearance of Christ himself in a spiritual form. And, and these particular Old Testament prophets and Old Testament writers, they heard the word of God in very clear ways and they wrote it down. The prophets had visions from God and dreams from God and he used those in many ways to communicate to the fathers of the Old Testament. But the writer here says, but I want you to know in these last days, 
In these last days, he has, become, he has spoken to us in his Son. He has spoken to us through his Son. And he's spoken to us a word that is full and rich and complete in so many ways that he deals with here. There are about eight things that the writer here says about Jesus that he wants those early, early readers to understand and just as necessary for you and me to understand in the day in which we live. Who is this Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus is God's prophetic voice. He's his final prophetic voice. Jesus came with the Word of God in a way that nobody ever had. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Pharisees and all the people were looking around, and they said, no one has ever spoken with the authority with which this man speaks. They, were, they who didn't even believe in him, they who never believed his message, they who tried to cover up his resurrection, those who could not accept that he was in any way a divine Son of God, God incarnate, they couldn't accept that, but they all looked at him and they said, he teaches in a manner unlike any of our teachers. He's, he's different from anything we've ever heard. That's because he was the final and the most powerful prophetic voice that God had ever spoken. He came as a prophet. And the writer of Hebrews is going to want us to see Jesus in all of his offices. And he does that here. And his first office is a prophetic office. He came to tell us what God required. He came to tell us about God's holiness. He came to tell us that what was expected of us and how we should live and must live and cannot live unless we come to him. And his word is prophetic from the very beginning. He is God's prophetic voice. And he makes that clear in verse, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, he wants to make clear that Jesus is God's Son. This one who speaks the prophetic nature, this one who speaks the prophetic message of God is not an angel, not a prophet in the, in the sense of the Old Testament prophets, but he is so much more. He is literally God's only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was his Son that came into the world. Now, you know, if, even for us Christians who believe in the Trinity, who believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who believe that he is the only begotten of the Father, but yet he is coexistent with the Father and has always existed in time past, we struggle with that a little bit. How do you understand this? his only begotten son. How do you understand that he's the son of God? But the Hebrews writer is wanting us to understand that this is not some mere man come into the world to give us a great message. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just somebody who has a, a word to say and we ought to consider it maybe. But rather he is the prophetic voice of God given in God's own son. And it's not a matter of we ought to Consider it that we ought to just maybe ponder it a bit, but that it's all we ought to hear it and hear it with the ears of obedience, hear it with hearts that cry out and say, Lord, you have spoken to us clearly about who you are in your Son. He has spoken to us that prophetic word, and He has served in other offices to minister to us, and we submit to His prophetic voice. He's the Son of God. Not just a man, not just a prophet, not just a good moral teacher. He is God incarnate. He also says that Jesus is the heir. He's the appointed heir of everything that is God. He says that in verse 2. Whom he appointed heir of all things. 
Now, an heir is one who receives that which the father owns, generally upon the father's death. Now, we know that God does not die, and so there's, there's a breakdown a little bit in the analogy there, but the point to understand is that, that he's saying very clearly and very emphatically that everything that is God's and everything that belongs to God belongs to his son. And you are his redeemed people, and so you belong to him. You are his inheritance. You are his gift. Jesus said in John chapter 6, he said, all, the fa- all that the Father gives me will come to me. We are a love gift, a grace gift from God to his Son. You belong to him. And what the writers warning those early Christians suffering persecution understand is you're not out there all by yourself. You're not out there alone, but you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to God, and God has given you to Christ as a gift of glory. It's a gift of grace. He's, the, he's God's appointed heir. Fourthly, he says he's God's creative agent. He says there at the end of verse 3, it is through whom he made the world. Paul writes in Colossians that all things have been made by him and apart from him, Jesus, there was nothing made that was made. In John 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, John says. Jesus was there at creation. We've just come through Advent season, and we tend to think of Jesus, at least if we're not careful, we tend to think of Jesus as having come into existence in the manger. That at that point, he came into this world, that's when he was born, that's when he had his life, that's when he began. But we understand from Scripture that that's not the case. John 1.1 tells us that he is the pre-existent, the pre-incarnate Son of God, that he has always been, and that he is co-equal with the Father. He and the Father are one, he said, more than one time in his earthly ministry. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he was God's creative agent, caring for his world, creating his world, and all that is in it. Fifth thing he says about Jesus is he is, he is God's personified glory God's personified glory in verse 3 and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature he is the radiance of his glory he's the radiance of his Shekinah his presence his shining glory that that the whole world needs to see and those Jewish believers heard that he is the radiance of his glory their thoughts would have gone back to the Shekinah glory in the Exodus when God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night they would have thought of the tabernacle as a matter of fact it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews always goes back to the tabernacle to the original if you will the I think he almost sees the temple which is permanent and stationary as being something of an, uh, of an accommodation by God to the people. He always goes back to the tabernacle and tabernacle worship because it was there in the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies set and the Ark of the Covenant set in the Holy of Holies and on that day of atonement when the high priest would go in to atone for the sins of the people that one day a year that the Shekinah glory of God, the fire of God, the, the revealed presence of God, the radiance of God would come down from heaven 
onto that altar and onto that Ark of the Covenant and, and the high priest would see the revealed presence of God. Right of Hebrews says you need to understand something. That, that should kind of glory in the tabernacle. That should kind of glory in the exodus. That should kind of glory doesn't even begin to compare with the radiance of God's glory that's seen in Jesus Christ. He shines forth who God is clearer than anything you'll ever see. He is the radiance. He's the personified glory of God. Those were objective glories. This is a personified glory. Made a person so that we might see it. He might live among us. He also says in verse 3 on the sixth matter that Jesus is God's perfect revelation. He's the radiance of His glory and He is the exact representation of His nature. This book is filled with things that tell us about what God is like. We're told that He's holy. We're told, we're told that He's just. We're told that He is righteous. We are told uh, that He is love. We are told many things about who God is and what God is like in this book and that's beautiful revelation but in Christ we have the perfect revelation of God without mediating from anybody else we see who he is in all of his glory in all of his power in his very nature he was a man who was without sin he was a man who was without guile he was a man who no one ever saw anything in his life that they could say this is error or this is sin. He walked in perfection. He showed us who God was clearer than anything a prophet had ever said. Clearer than anything a messenger had ever said or an angel had ever revealed. He revealed who God truly is. He's a perfect revealer of the personified glory and not only is he the creative agent, seventh in verse 3, it says that he is, Jesus is God's sustainer. He's his cosmic sustainer. He holds everything together. It says, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. You could break that down for hours here to talk about what he means by that. But he means literally that Jesus speaks and things stay together. If the word of his power were not operating even right now in this universe, in this world, then everything would just fly into a gazillion pieces. It would just disintegrate right before our very eyes. Jesus created it and Jesus sustains it. Jesus holds it together. He holds all things by the word of his power so that they will not collapse. They will not fall. If he holds the universe, if he holds the cosmos... If he holds the earth, how much more does he uphold his children? How much more does he uphold those who have trusted in him and placed their trust in him for salvation? And even though tempted, even though struggling with all the persecution, do we go back to Judaism? Do we go back to sacrifices? Or do we stay with Christ, the, the, the temptation being great? They need to understand more than anything else that Jesus is their sustainer. Jesus is their hope. Jesus is their provider in every respect. And then finally, he says in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, that he is God, Jesus is God's 
unique sacrifice. Now, there have been a lot of sacrifices. For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, sacrifices have been made for everything imaginable. The Day of Atonement, when the the Lamb was offered, and the, the Lamb without blemish was offered for the sins of the people to the scapegoats where the, the sins were symbolically laid on his head by the, uh, uh, by the high priest and he was led out in the wilderness to fall over a cliff and to die symbolically taking the sins away from the people and out of, this, out of the middle of the people's lives. But Jesus is his unique sacrifice. Those sacrifices were offered over and over and over year in and year out they had no real effective power they had no real power to cleanse sin they had no real power to change a person's life but he says here when he had made purification of sins the old sacrifices couldn't make real purification they couldn't really purify they really couldn't change a person's life they would make that sacrifice they would make that offering and nothing intrinsically and internally happened to them they had to come back later and do it all over again they had to come back later and offer that one and another one and this one for that sin and and it was just it was very complicated I'm so glad that's over but he made purification for sin To all who believe, to all who put their faith and trust in Christ, He is the unique sacrifice. That's what John talked about, John the Baptist, the day he baptized Jesus. And when Jesus came up out of the water and John's disciples were standing around kind of looking and Jesus' disciples wondering why he was baptized by by this itinerant preacher John and and everybody was a little confused and, and he came up out of the water and John pointed that old bony finger at him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world it wasn't you know behold a Lamb of God behold another sacrifice that will be repeated again in another 10 or 15 years but it was behold the Lamb of God who effectually and purposely takes away sin brings purification the disciples thought it was a good thing to have Jesus around when it came down to approaching Calvary they didn't want him to leave as a matter of fact Peter bold Peter said I'll die with you and they'll have to kill me before they get to you nobody's going to touch you and Jesus had to say to Peter get behind me Satan you know what you're talking about it was that cross for which he came it was on that cross where he made purification of sins it was on that cross where the absolute pure spotless without blemish Lamb of God hung dying receiving the sins of all his people and by virtue exchanging their sins for his righteousness he made purification he took the sins away and he gave righteousness he he took away the impure and he made pure he made purification of sins and his work is finished it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high the idea of sitting down is the idea of I'm done there's nothing else for me to do I've come I've done everything that is to be done 
My work is complete. My sacrifice has been made. My sacrifice is perfect. My sacrifice is without need of any addition. I don't need you to go running back to the sacrificial system. I don't need you to go running back to legalism. I don't need you to go running back trying to make God happy with you. If you are in Christ, your sins have been purified, your sins have been taken away, and that unique, perfect sacrifice has been made once and for all time in Jesus Christ. That's why we've got to get over the legalism even in our day-to-day. You know, we do things because we think we're making God happy. We do things because we think if we do it, God will like us better and God won't push us out and our deeds are keeping us in the faith. The writer of Hebrews is going to show us clearly in here that your good deeds and your offerings and your sacrifices that you make as far as even your own body, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, those are not sacrifices to earn favor with God. Those are sacrifices and gifts of appreciation and of gratitude and respect and thankfulness to Almighty God. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, future, taken care of, taken to the cross, hung there, destroyed there, and you have been given the righteousness of Christ. Does that mean that now that we're in grace, we're to go on sinning? Paul said, heavens no! What a ridiculous idea! Because if you're in Christ, there has been that purification in your life that has taken that away and has drawn you away from the old passions that once controlled your life. You know, our problem today is we continue sinning because we really do love our sin more than we love Christ. Think about that. We continue sinning today as as a and we do sin. And what I want you to think about is every time you sin and the Holy Spirit brings that, that sin to your mind, I want you to realize you have just said, I love this more than I love Christ. I want this more than I want holiness. I want this more than I want purity in my life. I, I love this sin more than I love Jesus Christ. That's why people have problems with sexual purity they they love the pleasure more than they love Christ when Christ has said this is how you shall live in a pure relationship and they say oh well but this is the new day and I just want to enjoy what I want to enjoy and so they go out and they follow their desires rather than following Christ Right of Hebrews wants these people to understand that it is in Christ that you have security. It is in Christ that you have hope. It is in Christ that you have the power to overcome this world. Nowhere else. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you're moral. It's not because you're stronger or smarter than somebody else. If you become an overcomer in this world, it will be because you are in Christ. Dirty, wretched sinner that you are, and that I am. As Paul said, the chief of all sinners he was, and I I, I could probably give him a run for that. My hope is not in my ability to not sin. My hope is not in my ability 
to keep myself pure. My hope is not in my ability to persevere strong by gritting my teeth and saying, I'm going to do this. But my hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ, who is my Redeemer and who has revealed to me God's truth and God's character and God's nature. My hope is in Christ. Folks, if you're a Christian who wants to persevere, if you're a Christian who wants to finish well, if you're a Christian who wants to live an obedient life, if you're a Christian who wants to live a life of purity because that's what God's called you to, it will only be because you look to Christ. It won't be because you just brought it up within yourself. It'll only be because you look to Christ. We're going to see that unfold throughout this book. These first chapters, he's going to show us that revelation. He's going to show us what God has said. He's going to show us the greatness of Jesus, even beyond what we see this morning. We're going to see him not only as the prophetic minister of God's Word, we're going to see him as the priestly minister. And we're going to see him as the king prophet, priest, and king that this writer unfolds him as. Three offices of Christ. All their glory that has great practical application to where you live. But I'll leave you this morning saying, look to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. You've tried to be good and, and you think yourself a good moral person and surely you're okay not if you're not in Christ. Because your goodness is filthy rags. Your goodness is just, Paul said, dung, manure. That's how, how your good, goodness is viewed in the eyes of God. Unless you're in Christ, where you're covered and clothed in His righteousness, in His purity, in His life. We'll see that unfold in the weeks to come the superiority of Jesus Christ. He reigns supreme. He's above all. We'll see that unfold. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we can come before you and know that Christ is above all. And that no matter what we're facing, that He is our sustainer. He is our creator. He is our sacrifice. He is our redeemer. And He is the exact radiance of your glory, the exact revelation of who you are. Father, help us look to Him. Help us look to Him in times of desperation. Help us look to Him in times of great joy. Help us look to Him, Lord, always. No matter what the circumstance might be. Father, I pray for men and women who maybe are here this morning and they're trusting in their goodness. They're trusting in their religion. They're trusting in their being able to somehow earn your favor by their good deeds. Lord, I pray this day that Jesus will become
become the great prophetic word to them that apart from me you can do nothing as he said in John 15 apart from him we are lost apart from him we are without hope but in Christ there is great hope help us who are believers but who still struggle to look to him in everything Father we thank you for all your precious gifts but most of all for the gift of your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray